0: It is written. The Gospel of Luke says, even though all of heaven and earth will pass away, my word will remain true forever. It is written. The book said to hide this in your heart and it's to consume of this thing constantly The Bible says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was the Word. It is written. Is this actually what that scripture is saying? It is written. All right, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, if you don't have a traditional Bible but you'd like one, just raise your hand and one of my friends will bring you one. You can either borrow that or you can keep it. It's our gift to you. Or you can take your smart device and open the you version or the Bible app and all the notes and scriptures are already right there. If you're watching us live online or at one of our many services at the Brown County Correctional Facility, we love you. We're so glad that you're a part of our family and we love you. We're so glad you are here live and not not in Memorex on this. That's an old commercial, live and not in Memorex on this. We're going to win another game Sunday. So give yourselves a hand for the fact that we're going to smash the Raiders today. (laughs) So I welcome to week two of a series that we're in called It Is Written, and it's a series that is really, really intentional. It's a series that, in my opinion, is very need-based because, like I said last week, we live in a culture that is Bible deficient. And I don't think it's because there's a lack of desire. I think it's because there is a lack of understanding, which then I think creates an intimidation factor where a separation is created between us and this book because this book, it scares us, it it intimidates us. And so I decided that it was time to do a series that would help you to understand the Bible because once you understand the Bible, it'll help you learn it. And once you start learning it, you're gonna start loving it and living it, leaning on it. And leaning into it, which you may think, well, why is that so important? And it's because Jesus himself said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. And yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. And I hate to be the one to break this to you, but rain, it's going to come. Streams, they're going to rise. Wind is going to blow and you need something to keep you secure, something to keep you firm, to help you to stay from falling. And so I want to help you today with a message that we're simply calling Understanding the Bible. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for your word, your word that became flesh, your word that in the beginning was, your word that is You, God, and so today I pray that our hearts would be changed, our minds would be changed, our behavior would be changed, our relationships, that God, as you squeeze that little last remainder of us out of us, fill the void with you so that we would leave here not like us, but we would leave here like you, in Jesus' name, amen. And so uh, what we would call living a Jesus life or walking your Jesus journey requires a balancing act. It really requires two things for success. It requires prayer, which simply is is us talking to God. And it requires scripture, or it requires the Bible, which simply is God talking to us. And those two things are like wings on a plane. Without either of them, you'll be off-center. Without either of them, you'll be off-balance. And I'm convinced that prayer isn't as difficult for people as reading their Bible. And that's because there are some basic things that we don't understand. Uh, When you don't understand it, it becomes distant. And when it becomes distant, you feel disconnected. Uh, Last week I was in California with a friend of mine named Chris. And Chris is one of the greatest communicators I've ever heard in my life. He actually preaches in character like like the first time that i heard him he he began his message with a guy who had just shattered a building and the the building had fell upon him and 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 he painted a picture of this terrorist who who had destroyed this building and and was lying underneath the rubble dead and and a mother and a father who are trying to remove rubble who are trying to remove bedrock who who are in their minds wondering what the people who are surrounding them are thinking of them of their their terror son who had just killed hundreds maybe thousands of people and as he told this story I was a hundred percent sure that he was talking about 9-11 until he revealed that he was preaching from the perspective of Samson's parents and y'all it just blew my mind I was completely riveted I was captivated I, I was on the edge of my seat I had never heard anything like it and so so sitting at his house in his backyard I said bro how are you so good and humbly, he, he kind of said, well, you know, a few years ago, I decided to put myself at the center of the story. I decided to, to like read scripture and ask myself, like, what were they seeing? What were they hearing, smelling, feeling? He said, and when I did that, it, it, it literally changed everything. And that, friends, is what I want for you. I want for you to be able to put yourself at the center of the story, but I don't think we can put ourselves at the center of this story until we, we understand the basic structure of the story. Like, you know, when you understand something, you love it more. Uh, uh, when I first uh, married my wife, uh, Pastor Sunny, I totally loved her, and, and, incidentally, I still totally love her. I love her more than, than I ever have. I love her more today than I loved her yesterday. And, and 24 years ago, when I married her, I totally loved her, but definitely didn't understand her. And if I'm being completely candid, completely honest, because we're in church, and if you lie in church, it feels like you'll catch on fire, I still, 24 years later, am growing in my understanding. I mean, ladies, I hate to tell you this, but y'all are tough to understand. Y'all don't make no sense. It, it, and it kind of reminds me of a story about a guy who was walking along the beach in California, and he found a little bottle, and he thought, "Huh, maybe I should rub this bottle. He rubbed it, and sure enough, poof, out came a genie. The genie came out, and he said, hold up, play hold on. Now, listen, I'm just a little genie, though. I don't have, I'm not a three-wish genie. I'm just a little small genie, so I can only give you one wish, so you better make it good. So the guy thought about it. He said, well, you know, I've always wanted to go to Hawaii, but I'm afraid to fly. So, so I would like it if you could build me a bridge from here to Hawaii. And so the genie paused and he scratched his head and he said, whew, man, that is quite a, re- a request. That is that is quite a wish. He said, I don't don't actually even know if that's possible. I mean, just the sheer amount of steel and and concrete and rebar required in that kind of construction, not to mention making that thing structurally sound over all of those miles. And the the little genie backed up and he said, I I hate to break this to you, but I think you're going to have to come up with something else. So the man paused and he said, hmm, okay, I get one wish. Hmm. All right. I want you to help me understand my wife. <laughs> the genie, he backed up, he said, did you want that to be one lane or two? <laughs> I don't care who you are, that's funny. If you're married, that is, that is be mad if you want, but, but you're laughing inside, guys, that's all. You're looking at your wife right now going, I don't think that's funny at all, but you know. You th- to risk getting in trouble, you think that that's funny. So anyway, my assignment today is to help you understand the Bible, which I really need about eight hours to do it justice, but I have like 24 and a half minutes, so we're going to have to fit eight hours worth of content into 24 and a half minutes. So let me start by saying this. The word Bible that you find written on your book is not a magical term. It is not even a spiritual term. It just means book. So when you look at this and it says Holy Bible, it means holy book. And it comes from the Greek word Biblios. And the Greeks came up with that word because there is a city. It's still around today. It's one of the most continuous habitated cities in the history of the world. At that time, that city, which now is just east of Beirut, Lebanon, was under Greek control, and it is called Biblos. And at the time, the city of Byblos was the world's largest producer of papyrus, which is where we get our English word paper. So the people of Byblos were paper manufacturers. Anybody know somebody who's a paper maker? I mean, come on, y'all. These, these were our forefathers. The, the Bible could have been written in Wisconsin. That's all, that's all I'm saying. And this Biblios or this book is like no other book that's ever existed. Not only is it the most read book in the history of the world, not only is it the most translated, best-selling book in the history of the world, but all of time and history measures itself, hinges upon the contents of this book. And next week, I'm going to bring you a message that will defend it. And and I'm going to try to show you how to defend the validity and the accuracy of it. I'm literally going to try in 28 minutes to teach you an entire semester worth of graduate apologetics because because there's an attack on the Bible in this generation. And so I thought, just let let me stir your appetite real quick because I I want you to come back next week. I don't want you to catch this on the rebroadcast. like You probably know this, but this book was written actually over a period of 1,600 years in a dozen countries on three continents in three languages by 40 different People, many of whom had never met each other or knew that the others were even writing content. And you might ask, well, why is that even important? Why would I care? Because do you know the odds of that many people over that much time and distance from that many cultures writing something that is absolutely without error and has zero contradictions? I mean, having uniformity would make sense if it were written by one person. For example, the Quran, written by one person, Muhammad; the Analects of Confucius, one person; the writings of Buddha, one person. But over 1,600 years in three different languages by 40 different people from all different walks of life. You literally have poets, prophets, princes, kings, sailors, attorneys, doctors, farmers, scholars, shepherds, priests, historians, fishermen, tax collectors, and businessmen who wrote it in caves and ships, homes and palaces, prisons and deserts, all without error and all without a single contradiction. How? How did they come up with the same story. Well, you're going to learn more about this next week, but the moral of it is there were 40 writers, but only one author who was writing his autobiography. And he is the author and the finisher of our faith. This book says that all scripture is God breathed, which doesn't just mean he said it. If you were here last week, you remember I talked about a Greek word pneuma, and it means power, which means when he said this, he said this with the power for its own fulfillment. And they, the scriptures, are useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All that to say, it works. (laughs) And it'll work in your marriages and on your money, in your homes, and on your habits if you'll unleash it in your life. But before you can unleash it, You have to understand it. So, today, I wanna help you do just that. I wanna help you understand this misunderstood book. And as weird as this may sound, one of the things I think will help you to understand the Bible as a whole is to understand the flow. Because I spent the first number of years not knowing the flow. And what I mean is that the Bible as we see it is not written in order, it is not arranged chronologically. Genesis was not the first book written chronologically. That was probably actually the book of Job. And conversationally, Revelation was not the last book written. That was likely the book of Third John. So the books of the Bible are actually grouped by type. Which, which is why for some people, it can be difficult for them to read it sequentially or, or cover to cover. But the order in which it is arranged serves a purpose. So I thought, let me break that down for you so that you can kind of grasp that. And then we'll kind of build on something. And then I'm going to give you a picture at the end that you're going to see on the screens. And I hope that all of that will help you to understand it more. So, so we know your Old Testament starts with five books that are actually called the law books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, number Deuteronomy. And it starts with the law books because anytime you're deciding if you're gonna get into something, it's important that you know the rules up front. And, and so you have the law books and these books tell us about creation, about the original sin, about dudes named Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. It tells us about the commandments, 10 of them, but more than 600 of them, actually. Then it tells us all sorts of stuff surrounding the giving and the receiving of the law. And these books, the first five, also called the Pentateuch, which just means the first five, penta, meaning five, it's called the Pentateuch. They take us up to the point where God's people entered what the book calls the promised land. That's, That's the first five books, the law. That's how it starts. The next section is called the historical section. And that's, that's 12 books that are about Israel's history after Moses. And those 12 books take us uh, from the story where Joshua, Moses' assistant, becomes the leader and takes all of these people, a couple million people incidentally, into a land that God had gifted them. And that takes us all the way through a book called Esther, which actually is the end of the Old Testament historically. Esther is when the Jews were actually brought into exile in Babylon. So if you're reading this as a history book, it actually ends there. But of course, we know that it doesn't end there. In our book, there's actually more to the Old Testament. There's other sections. So next, in the order of our Bible as it's arranged, you have the the, the poetic section. That's five books, the book of Job through the book of Song of Solomon. And chronologically, you could insert some of the Psalms Into that section, which let me pause and just say if you have never read the Bible chronologically, you should. It is so interesting. I have an actual chronological Bible. You can buy it at any bookstore, but if you don't want to spend the money, you can take your U Version or your Bible app, and they have a chronological Bible plan on there. And it is so interesting, especially for me to see the Psalms randomly placed throughout other books as they were written chronologically. So you have the, the poetic section. Then after the poetic section, you have a group called the prophetic section. And prophetic just means a predicting. And and all of these, like these books predict things that are yet to come at their time, in, including, and I'm going to talk about this more next week, including 300 prophecies or 300 predictions about Jesus before Jesus was ever born. So you have 17 books of prophetic or predictive writings. And all of these authors who wrote the prophetic books would have lived during the historical section, the section of Joshua to Esther. So that's when those books were written. And I don't know if that helps you. I don't know if that's interesting to you. I don't know if you care. But when I learned that, because I didn't know that from the jump, when I learned that, it helped me to process it better. So you have the prophetic section. And even that is broken down into two sets. You you have the five major prophets, which is Isaiah through Daniel, and, and they're called major prophets not because they're the starting five. They're not called major prophets because they're more important. They're called the major prophets because they're longer. So you have five major prophets, and then you have 12 what are called minor prophets. Hosea through Malachi, or for all of you uh, fellow Happy Days fans, Malachi. I, Hosea through the Malachi Crunch. Again, minor just because they're shorter, not because they're more important. And then that, that's the end of the Old Testament. So I just literally gave you the Old Testament in six minutes, all right? And then you have 400 years of complete silence. No scripture is written for 400 years. And during that 400 years of silence, obviously, a lot of stuff happens. Like the Jews come out of exile and go back to Jerusalem. You have the Greek conquest in that gap with Alexander the Great. You have the Roman conquest with Julius Caesar, Octavian, Mark Antony, and of course, Caesar Augustus, which is where our New Testament starts. Our New Testament starts with the Romans in charge of Jerusalem. And it starts with four books that are called the Gospels. And the word gospel just simply means good news. And the good news is Jesus. So you have four books talking about the fact that Jesus had come. And those four books are four different accounts that have four different perspectives of the same story. The story of Jesus, which we know ends with his death, resurrection, and ascension, which means going back with his ascension to heaven. Then immediately after Jesus ascended to heaven, the church was established. And the historical record of the first church is called the book of Acts, or it's also called the Acts of the Apostles. And the difference between a disciple, who we read about in the Gospels, and an apostle, who we read about in the book of Acts, is that a disciple is a student But an apostle is someone who delivers those teachings. An apostle is actually just a messenger. So you you had these messengers, these apostles, delivering the message of Jesus all around the world. And their delivery system was the church. So they started churches around the world, which is why we're starting other sites, because we're just practicing what the apostles modeled for us. Those were the, the acts of the apostles, and to keep those churches from going off track, from wiling out, the apostles wrote letters of instruction and correction. Twenty-one of them. So most of the New Testament, from Romans to Jude, are called epistles, and that word epistle simply means letter. And again, if you look at the story chronologically, all of the epistles would be inserted chronologically somewhere inside the book of Acts. So 21 books called epistles, all of which are really valuable because they give us doctrine and instruction on how to live our lives both spiritually and practically. Then, of course, you have the 66th book, which is called the book of Revelation, which scares the fire out of most people in this room because it is crazy. But... The book of Revelation is what you call an apocalyptic book because it comes from the Greek word apokalupsis, which just means unveiling. So when you talk about apocalypse, we have written this picture of a word, apocalypse, like it means like fire falling from heaven and things blowing up and nuclear explosions and all of these sorts of things. But that's, that's not what apocalypse is. Apocalypse is just an unveiling. And so the book of Revelation was God unveiling through the guy who wrote it, John, the disciple who Jesus loved, how all of this is going to end. So this thing, these 66 books, obviously, I literally just gave you the entire history of the Bible in nine minutes, what took me four years of seminary to figure out. And so uh, this book, obviously, when you take all of that into context and consideration, can be very difficult to understand. But scripture actually gives us a key to unlock the confusion. And the key that it gives us is actually hidden inside of its literary structure. So the Bible has this very interesting, very unique literary structure. How it is laid out, it is laid out. It is something called a chiasm, and a chiasm is what's like it's a mirror image. And if you were here when I talked about the prodigal son. the the prodigal son, as a story. Actually, I called it a parabolic ballad because it's laid out like a song. And all of scripture is laid out as a mirror image. And a chiasm was a Greek format where a series of ideas are presented and then they are repeated in the opposite order. It's also called inverted parallelism. And the purpose of that was to create emphasis, repetition, and clarification. And so in the next 10 minutes, I want to try to show you a picture of what that mirror image looks like. And it's going to look small on the screen. So what we did is our team made it available on our app. So you can follow along in real time. And if you don't have our app, you can download it right now. It's just Life Church Green Bay, and you can download it. And have this information available to you either right now or specifically you, this is one of those messages you're going to want to go back and re-watch, FYI, because there's like so much content, and next week is going to be the same. There's more content next week than there is this week, if you can believe that. And so you can take your app, and you can go back throughout the week, and you can look at this, and you can study it, okay? So here is the chiasm. We know, of course, that the story starts in Genesis 1 with God and righteous man in paradise. Now, righteous then... Meant that he was perfect. God made man sinless, made him perfect. And so man was in perfect fellowship with God. There was no shame. There was no guilt, even the garden was perfect. They didn't even need to have rain because underground fountains fed the ecosystem. It was a perfect world and that was God's dream. It was what God intended. It's what God wanted then and what God wants now and that is to have open fellowship with man where we enjoy his creation together. So that's how it began, but it didn't take long for that dream to be dashed. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan and sin slither into the picture, and here's what sin does. And it's important that you understand this. Sin separates. And it separates because we become unholy while God remains holy. Light and darkness cannot exist together. Holiness and unholiness cannot be in each other's Presence, so a gap is created. Distance is created. And some of you feel that today. And the gap that you feel between you and God seems huge. It seems insurmountable. But let me just say that the gap was not caused by God. The gap was caused by your sin and mine. We have all sinned. Scripture says it. In Romans, it says, For all have sinned and continue to fall short of the glory of God. But sin unreconciled creates separation. And in that chasm, chaos ensues. That is the fruit of sin. The fruit of sin is chaos. It's how you know when you're in sin. No one needs to tell you when you're in sin. You will know. And you will know because your life will start to feel chaotic. Your life will start to feel all messed up. And that's what happened in this story next. Because the next thing that happens is they got so chaotic that God said, man, I got to start over. So the world was judged and the world was destroyed. That's the story of Noah. Humanity was in such chaos that God had to do a reboot. So again, God used a righteous man. Instead here, God redefined what righteous meant. He no longer required perfection for righteousness because he redefined righteous simply to mean in right standing. Which meant, and this is mind-boggling, scripture says there was only one man on earth who was in right standing with God. So, scripture says, Noah found favor in the eyes of God, and through him, God repopulated the earth. Well, it still didn't work. And it still didn't work because humans were involved. And before long, humanity went right back to their old sinful ways. Chaos came right back in, and in their sin and selfish striving, rather than submitting to God, man decided that he would try to supersede God, and he built a tower called the Tower of Babel. And they tried to gather their collective strength and might by forming a one world government that had one religion and one language and one goal, which was to overtake God. So God had to intervene again. Does it sound like parenting? <laughs> but rather than destroying humanity, he decided to destroy their system. And so we confused their languages, and this is where nations were born. And God created his own system. And that system was the 12 tribes of Israel. And God said, I'm going to pick one group of people, and I'm going to set them in order. And the hope was that they would spread that system to the rest of the world, which is literally what the rest of the Old Testament is about. The rest of the Old Testament is about God's system. He sent laws... He sent instructions, ways to get to him through sacrifices and atonement, but that didn't work either because humanity held the law at arm's length. It was external. They obeyed it out of duty rather than out of desire. So God had to do something to move it from external and make it internal, which is a marker between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament was marked by an external law, Where the law in the New Testament is made internal because of Jesus, who came to enable relationship because we all know that rules without relationship always result in rebellion. So God sent his son Jesus to serve as his sacrifice and our savior, which is why Jesus sits at the top and at the center of the story. He's the pivot point. Because up to that point, the only way to get free of your sin was to pay for it yourself. Which incidentally, can I just say hell is a real place? But it isn't a place where God sends people. It's a place where people who have decided to pay for their own sins with their own efforts are going to spend eternity. And you paid in those days for your sins with an external sacrifice. But when Jesus came along, he offered to pick up the tab. He offered to pay your bill. And he said, I'm not just gonna pay your bill, but I'm gonna leave the tip. And that tip is called the Holy Spirit, who he sent to help you take the external laws that were written on tablets and make them internal by writing them on your heart. And he devised a new delivery system. Instead of 12 tribes, he chose 12 disciples. And he said, as their method, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But hell is determined to have all of its might pushed toward its prevalence. So hell has caused humanity to go right back to their old sinful ways. And chaos has come right back. And in our sin and selfish striving rather than submitting to God, we again have decided to try to supersede God. And we're trying to gather our collective strength and might to form a one-world government, which is why Russia and China... And the Middle East are all gathering together. It's been in the news for years, but it's been in the book of Revelation the whole time. And the next step in the book, the next step in the story is to see the rise of someone called the Antichrist, which incidentally Christ was not Jesus last name. He was not Jesus Christ, son of Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. And Messiah means Savior. So an anti-Christ or anti-Messiah, an anti-Savior is going to slither in and seduce humanity by asking this question. And it is a repeat of what we see in Genesis 3. He will say, did God really say? Did God really say that marriage is sacred? Or did God really say you don't have the right to choose? Isn't it your body? Did God really say you can't love whoever you want? Weren't you born that way? Did God really say that Scripture is really relevant and that anti-savior will then make life miserable with one religion and one currency and no way to buy or sell or survive outside his system? So to keep his righteous people from enduring that, God will remove them from the environment, which will cause even greater chaos. Just imagine when a couple billion people, poof, disappear in the middle of the night, which will only be able to be solved, this chaos, when God judges and destroys this earth one last time. But this time, not with water like Noah, but with fire as a purification of the world. And he is going to redo the whole thing one last time. But this time, he already has a remnant of people who have him, watch this, in their hearts. Which is what makes this thing different. And it's how he's going to bind up the temper, the tempter, the serpent, Satan. And sin is going to be eliminated. So that humanity can re-enter perfect fellowship with God. Not as righteous people, but as redeemed people in paradise. And paradise, y'all, heaven, listen, can I just say, heaven ain't what y'all think. Like, it's not some celestial retirement home where we're all going to sing in the fat baby angel choir. (laughs) The closest English word we have to the Greek and Hebrew word paradise is the word resort. Come on, somebody. Hello! Hello! (laughs) <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. You ever been on a cruise? You ever been? All I'm saying is when I get to heaven, all I'm going to do is eat. That's what I'm saying. I'm going right to the dessert table because uh, we're going to get thinner when we eat sugar in heaven. That ain't in the book, but it should be. Is all I'm saying. And I want to live in that resort. And the goal for my life is that you live in that resort too. So I needed you to see this picture of how this whole story starts, how this whole story ends, and this whole story hinges on one thing, Jesus who came so he could take it from a bunch of external rules and turn it into an internal relationship that results in the eternal reward of residing in the resort that we call heaven. And I wonder, where are you in this story? Are you on the outside in rebellion, or are you on the inside in relationship? Would you close your eyes all across this place? Are you on the outside in rebellion? See, that, that's where people live before Jesus. We live in utter total rebellion where we do what we want, go where we want, say what we want with who we want, how we want. And at some point we realize that our system is broken, our system's not working and we need to submit ourselves to a different system that only flows through a savior named Jesus. And this morning we're gonna give you an opportunity to do that. Here's the summation of salvation that you admit that you're a sinner, you admit that he's a savior, and you combine those two things. And so this morning, we wanna give you opportunity to do that, to confess that you're a sinner and profess that he can save you. So this morning, here's how we're gonna give you opportunity to do that. Two things. In just a moment, with nobody looking around, everybody's eyes will be closed, I'm gonna ask for people who need to enter a relationship with Jesus to do two things. First is gonna be in just a moment to raise their hand and make eye contact with me. And once you've made eye contact with me, you can put your hand down. And then I'm gonna ask everyone in this place to pray a prayer after me. So if you're here and you say, Sean, I need to receive Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior and take this from external and make it internal with nobody looking around. Would you just raise your hand so I can see you? Thanks, 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 thanks. thanks. Thank you. Thanks, 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 thanks. Thanks. Okay, I'm gonna ask everybody in here, say these words after me. Say, Jesus... I'm a sinner, but I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Come into my life and change me. Make me different. Make me new. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer, it doesn't make you perfect, but it does make you forgiven. And so it starts you on a new trajectory, starts you on a new journey away from who you are toward who Jesus wants you to be. And so we would love to walk this journey with you. The easiest way for you to help us do that is to take the hello card that you found in the seat back in front of you, tear off the bottom part, check the box that's highlighted in yellow that says I'm choosing to follow Jesus and either put it in the black buckets when they come around in a minute or take it out to the Welcome Center. Either way, we just want the chance to pray for you and we have a packet for you with a few things. Out at the welcome center too i'm going to ask you to close your eyes one more time don't leave yet we're not done pastor sunday's going to close us out but i wonder if you're hearing you say sean i'm a jesus guy or i'm a jesus girl uh but mm, this has definitely been external for you this has been like your uh, get out of jail free card and so because of that you've still been kind of holding jesus and holding his his rules if you would at arm's length but you're ready to let him from the outside and let him in. I'm not talking about like I'm going to heaven or not. You, you've prayed the prayer, you've done the thing, you're going to heaven, but you know, that, you know that you've been keeping him at arm's length, and it's time for you to let him in. If that's you, would you just raise your hand today if you've been keeping at arm's length? God, thank you for my friends who are in this place. Bless them. Give them strength. Give them mercy. Give them wisdom. God, we want nothing but all of you. In Jesus' name, amen.